Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo, and I bring stories and cases from the people of color community, bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Black indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So, welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. The estimated 23 to 27 honor killings per year occur in the United States. Noted that 91% of victims in North America are murdered for being, quote-unquote, too westernized. And in incidents involving daughters 18 years or younger, a father is almost always involved. This is a particular type of violence that doesn't fit neatly into the FBI's union crime reporting statistics. In this episode, I will talk about a handful of women and their families that were involved in honor violence or honor killings. These are their stories. What is honor violence? Violence against women. It's a control power issue. The strong versus weak. A killing is, or honor violence, is when a person is subjected to violence by her collective family or community. In order to restore the honor that has been presumed to be lost by her behavior, often through if expressions of sexual autonomy, that is technically the term, most victims are young females, though there are some male victims, often either homosexual or or linked romantically with the female victim. Most perpetrators are male and usually the father or another family member of the victim. Although honor violence is most prevalent among people from Islamic regions of the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, honor crimes are not condoned by Islamic law. Honor violence has also been documented among persons of Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Jewish, and Christian faith. These are violence that are being perpetrated against these women. We have seen an increase of numbers of victims just recently in the last several years. It seems like either it's a new phenomenon, actually it has been happening all through civilization. It's just we are finally able to document it because we are able to communicate through technology and collect more data there are four types of honor violence discussed frequently, and that is forced marriage, honor-based domestic violence, honor killing, and female genital mutilation. Hidden among thousands of nondescript murders and cases are usually labeled as domestic violence. Honor killings and or violence in the U.S. are often unreported because of the shame it can cause to the victim and the victim's family. Honor violence is a form of family violence and that is committed by the family members against other family members. And this is what it looks like. Honor violence focuses on the family and during the honor crimes, there is more than one perpetrator and is likely involved in planning or implementing the escalating control and violence. 
Perpetrators of honor violence often view their actions as required by the code of honor rather than as criminal acts. Victims may be shunned by their family and communities. There is more often an element of religious coercion in honor violence than in domestic violence. Here's a little bit of history in regards to the legal landscape of the United States. Legal doctrines like the Article 153 continue to operate across the United States under a variety of different names, including provocation, the quote-unquote reasonable man standard, the extreme emotional disturbance. It is quite difficult to state a quote-unquote American law knowing that the U.S. legal system is comprised of 52 different jurisdictions. And all of these U.S. jurisdictions are rooted in the British common law. These so-called American quote-unquote crimes of passion have been historically analyzed using a provocation framework for mitigating homicide, typically a felony, to manslaughter, which is a lesser category of crime with a lower sentence. This is the concept that the killer was provoked into committing homicide during a sudden rage of passion and lost control, not due to a malicious premeditated plan. These types of crimes should be tried as first-degree murder instead of manslaughter. And this construct of provocation was developed in 1684. And at this point, all murders were considered punishable by death surrounding homicide law. By 1707, the English courts created four major common law categories of adequate provocation, including the sight of the accused engaging in adulterous act with another man, which was a British case, Regina v. Malgridge, which upheld this jurisdiction that a husband was tried and found guilty of manslaughter on the basis that his wife was considered his property, and that Quote, jealousy is the rage of man, and adultery is the highest invasion of property. So a man cannot receive a higher provocation, end quote. And now because some jurisdictions began to feel that the common law didn't sufficiently cover all the circumstances under which provocation may occur, so they created the reasonable man standard, which leaves to the jury the task of deciding whether there were events or circumstances significant enough to have provoked a reasonable man into killing, and that was adopted in the United States by Maurer versus People, Michigan of 1862. And under this common law, a man needed to prove that he had actually witnessed his wife engaging in a sexual act with another person. This reasonable man standard Expanded under circumstances of a man can claim he was legitimately provoked into violence and at times that the husband did not need to be an eyewitness of a sexual act. And even if a man mistaken that his wife was adulterer before killing her, his belief would, quote, calculate to induce the same emotions as would be felt were the wrongful act in fact committed, end quote, causing this uncontrollable passion. This type of mental illness negation has been used by the defense in crimes of passion cases as an extension of extreme mental or emotional disturbance 
caused by extreme provocation. In today's mid-roll, currently an NCMEC, also pronounced NICMEC, which stands for National Centers for Missing and Exploited Children, there are 329 children currently missing in the state of Texas. And of those, 234 fall under Black Indigenous, Native Hawaiian, Asian American, Pacific Islanders community. All of their lives matter. And today, I will identify the ones that are still currently on Amber Alerts. This is mid-roll missing in Texas. There are more kids still on active Amber Alerts in Texas than there are in any of the other states based in NICMEC. Jesus Martinez has been missing since October 20, 2004. He was only four years old. He was last seen near his home in Houston, Texas at approximately 9 a.m. on October 20th with his mother and father. His mother has since been found deceased. Jesus may be in the company of his father, Avelino Martinez, and there is a federal warrant for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, which was issued to Avelino on February 13, 2007. Avelino should be considered armed and dangerous. Caution is advised. Kendrick Jackson, missing since April 7, 2006. He was only three years old. Kendrick was last seen at home on April 7. When he was last seen, he was wearing a white t-shirt and pajama shorts with pictures of baseball and footballs on them. Elian Mahano has been missing since June 21, 2006. He was only three years old. He was last seen playing in a local park on June 21st. Elian was wearing floral print shorts, a white t-shirt, and Spider-Man sandals. Danielle Jimenez. She's been missing since July 31st, 2006. She was only three years old. She was last seen in the evening of July 31st at her home in Channel View, Texas. Danielle may be in the company of her father. Leandro Jimenez. A felony warrant for homicide was issued for her father on August 1st, 2006. They may be traveling in a silver 2004 Chevrolet extended cab pickup truck with Texas license plates 9NGH92. They may have traveled to Del Rio, Texas or Mexico. Caution is advised. Daisha Weaver. She's been missing since June 10, 2009. She was only nine months old when she went missing. Last seen at her home on June 10th and is missing under suspicious circumstances. Armadre Argumon has been missing since September 18, 2020. He was only a month old and last seen at home on September 18th. He was last seen wearing a diaper Last but not least, Lina Sadar Kiel has been missing since December 20, 2021. She was only three years old. Lina was last known to be wearing a red dress and a black jacket. If you want to see all the other Amber Alerts in your state, I will have the link in the show notes. Palestina Isa, also called Tina. On November 6, 1989, in St. Louis, Missouri, she was the youngest of seven children 
to Zain and Maria Isa. Tina's father was born in the West Bank in Palestine and raised in the Muslim faith. Maria, meanwhile, was born in Brazil and a Roman Catholic. Zain married Maria, his second wife, in February of 63, despite objections from her parents. And over the years, the couples bounced from Brazil, Puerto Rico, Palestine, and the United States. The family finally moved to St. Louis in 86, and Zion opened a grocery store. Tina attended Roosevelt High School and was an honor student, and by the fall of 1989, she was a senior at 16 and had dreams of becoming a pilot and wanted to study aeronautical engineering at St. Louis University's Park College of Engineering, Aviation, and Technology. Tina had evolved in the life of the United States far better than her parents and her siblings who disapproved of Tina's social life and interest in high school athletics. And Tina had snuck out of house to go to junior prom, and when her members of her family found out, they went to the school and dragged her home. On Sunday, November 5, 1989, Tina actually started a part-time job at a local Wendy's. This was against her parents' wishes. She did leave a note explaining that she would turn home late, and at the time... Her boyfriend agreed to walk her home that night after work. When Tina got home just before midnight, she would be dead approximately 30 minutes later. St. Louis police arrived at the apartment and found Tina stabbed to death. Zion and Maria claimed to have killed their daughter in self-defense, stating that Tina had come home demanding $5,000, and when they refused, Tina attacked them with a bony knife. Zine said he took the knife from his daughter and fatally wounded her. Now, at the time of the couple's arrest, their stories did not match the evidence collected by the investigators, specifically the presence of defensive wounds on Tina's body. Ironically, federal agents had been in the process of recording their phone calls and surveilling their home, believing that Zine was part of a terrorist organization. So at the time that they were collecting evidence, federal agents turned over their recordings of the family's apartment to the local prosecutors. FBI surveillance unit was not currently staffing at the residence at the time of Tina's murder, so they were not able to react in time to the killing. And so when the audio surveillance was reviewed on the morning of November 6th, not only did they hear the killing on tape, they learned Zion had attacked Tina while Maria held her daughter down. Zion and Maria were charged with first-degree murder. And during this trial, the jurors had listened to a grueling seven-minute audio recording. You can hear Tina explaining that she was working. This angered her parents further because their children were forbidden from working anywhere other than the family's grocery store. Then the conversation turned to Tina's relationship with the 18-year-old black man, which her parents absolutely disapproved of. Zion at the time had planned Tina to marry a boy in Palestine and to move back there. After this, the argument reached a horrific twist. So on October 25, 1991, the jury convicted Zion and Maria Isa. 
they recommended the death penalty for both parents. And two months later, in December 20th, the judge did agree with the jury's recommendation and sentenced them to death. Zion and Maria became only the second married couple in the country to be sentenced to die. Unfortunately, Zion died on February 17, 1997 due to complications from diabetes. Maria also died from natural causes on April 30, 2014. Hatiz Peltek, April 15, 2004, in Scottsville, New York. There is very little information on Hatiz, but in the NPR News reported, in April of 2004, a Turkish immigrant, Ismail Peltek, repeatedly struck his wife, Hatiz Peltek, who was 39, bludgeoning her with a hammer and stabbing her repeatedly while his family slept. Sheriff's deputies were called to the Peltic home at 7.25 a.m. on April 15th. They found Peltic's 22-year-old daughter covered with blood who had run to the nearby business to ask for help. Ismail Peltic attacked his wife and daughters after learning that his brother had molested his wife and his 22-year-old daughter, according to court documents. He also attacked his four-year-old daughter because she had been, quote-unquote, sullied by a gynecological exam. His daughters suffered fractured skulls from hammer blows. And at the time of his arrest and investigation, the Rochester police officer whom spoke Turkish asked Ismail, quote, If you had the opportunity to kill the family again, would you? Ismail responded, Quote, my female family, yes. My male family, no. They took my honor. End quote. Aksa Parvez, 16 years old, December 2007, in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Parvez was a student of Applewood Heights Secondary School. Her father, Mohammed Parvez, was a taxi driver. She grew up in a Muslim family of Pakistani origin. And a week before her death, she had moved in with the family of a neighbor to escape tension with her family. Parvez had academic difficulties at school and refused pleas to be moved to an Islamic school. After leaving home the first time, mostly because she disliked the hijab, her father sent her a letter promising to allow her more freedom. Yet, she later left home a second time. Unfortunately, in the articles, it does not provide the actual date. But in December of 2007, Aksa was strangled by her father, Muhammad. Her and her father often quarreled because of her refusal to wear a hijab, which is a traditional headscarf. And she would sometimes change out of her traditional Muslim outfit once she arrived at school. And after the attack, sadly she died later that night in a hospital. Yet her father and her brother, from the beginning, misled investigators. However, they were later on charged with first-degree murder. Their hearing case began in January 7, 2009. And even though there was not that many people who knew Aksa until she had lost her life, 
the community gathered up and dedicated a memorial granite bench on September 18, 2009. It carries the inscription, quote, Remembering new Canadians lost to the quest of integrating cultures and loving memory of Oxa Parvez, remembered and free, end quote. They were determined that she should not be forgotten. Monica Rani Rajesh Aurora Vanch Kumar, December 29, 2007, in Oak Forest, Illinois. Monica was pregnant with her second child. Her husband, Rajesh, and their son, Vanch Kumar, lived in a 36-unit building off of Leclerc Avenue. Sabash Chander, Monica's father, lived across the street. Unfortunately, Chander and his son-in-law had a strained relationship throughout his marriage to Rani, which lasted a little bit more than three years. On December 29, 2007, that night, a man who lived in the same apartment building of Monica witnessed Chander leaving the building and smelling of gasoline just as smoke alarms began to alert residents to the fire that he just set ablaze. A large plastic pharmaceutical bottle with the label bearing Chandra's name containing gasoline was later found by police in a trash bin outside his apartment. Video surveillance has revealed that a man fitting Chandra's description had filled the container with gas at a nearby gas station before the fire. A stack of multiple witnesses positively identify him as being at that gas station. The fire broke out about 10.45 p.m. By the time the police and firefighters arrived at the Leclerc Station apartment building that night of the fire, residents were jumping from balconies of the two-story building. It wasn't until the fire was extinguished and investigators had determined that the upper floor of the building had collapsed. There, they would discover three bodies. Monica, 22 years old. Rajesh, 30 years old, and Vanch, 3 years old. Sabhash Chander was arrested, and later on, a jury convicted him in March of three counts of first-degree murder for pouring gasoline outside the Oak Forest apartment of his 22-year-old daughter, apparently following an argument and setting it ablaze. Once the sentence was handed down, Chander made no comment and afterward waved to family members in the courtroom. Amina and Sarah Said, January 17, 2008, in Louisville, Texas. It is so crazy that I've never heard of this story, knowing that I currently live in Texas. On January 17, 2008, Yasser Said shot and killed his teenage daughters, Sarah and Amina. Girls both had boyfriends infuriating their father, who had claimed that they had become too, quote-unquote, Western. Their father, Yasser Said, was on the run for over 12 years and was actually on the FBI's most wanted list. He was finally captured in 2020. And just recently of this year, August 9th, Dallas jury unanimously found Yasser Said 
guilty of killing his two teenage daughters. It took jurors only three hours to convict him for the deaths of his daughters, Amina and Sarah. The judge sentenced Said to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And as the sentence was handed down, Said showed no emotions. During his trial, Said heard two victim impact statements, one of them from his ex-wife, Patricia Owens. She was seen she was seen holding up the pictures of Amina and Sarah. Patricia identified to the jurors that she will never, ever get to see her daughters grow up and graduate from college or be doctors or even get married. She even told the jurors as she looked directly at Saeed, explaining that the abuse she had endured at the time of their marriage. At the end of her statement, Patricia quoted, Yasser Saeed, you're a devil. You murdered your girls. I hope somebody gets their hands on you and hurt you and do everything you've ever did to anybody. That's counting the nine bullets you put in Sarah. And she called 911. Amina, two bullets in the heart. End quote. There were even emails that a teacher saved presented to the court from the girls prior to the murder saying that they feared their father would kill them. On Associated Press YouTube channel, the Dallas police released a 911 recordings in connection to the killings of the two teenage sisters. You can hear one of the girls crying for help and listening to her take her last breath. The girls were found shot multiple times in a cab. Sandila Kanwal, on July 6, 2008, Clayton County, Georgia. From the New York Post, Sandila married her husband, which was an arranged marriage, on March 14, 2002. Even though she was newly married, her and her husband moved to two different cities in the U.S., her husband moving to Chicago while she moved to Clayton County, Georgia with her father, Chaudhry Rashid, and his father's second wife. Once she resided with her father after arriving to the U.S., she officially filed for divorce on July 1st after being separated on April 15th of that year. And after that divorce, she began a new romantic relationship someone that her father completely disapproved of. Sandila and her father began to grow distant because of this relationship and just stopped communicating with one another. On July 6, 2008, her father, Chaudhry, strangled her with a bungee cord and left her in the bedroom of the house on the second floor. He then burned the bungee cord and flushed the ashes down the toilet. Chaudhry's second wife, was so much in distraught that she left the house and decided to contact the police. Sandila's father was arrested, but then briefly experienced a seizure and was hospitalized briefly. He identified in the arrest warrant that her divorce caused the family to lose honor. During the court proceedings, his legal team continued to identify that this was not an honor killing but had committed homicide in a spur of the momentary anger. Yet it only took the jurors four hours to convict him on felony and malice murder aggravated assault in May of 2011. He was given life imprisonment but with the eligibility of parole. Rashid appealed his conviction at the end of 2013 and then Georgia Supreme Court upheld on basis that it was 
wrong for jurors to review footage of his interview held at the police station. Asiya Hassan, 2009 in Buffalo, New York. Asiya was a trained architect and businesswoman. She founded and operated with her husband an American Muslim Lifestyles cable channel. It was created to build bridges of understanding between Muslim and non-Muslims. She also ran a 7-Eleven franchise and raised two children and two stepchildren. By Mol, Hassan's first marriage. As her husband's abuse escalated, she began to document and photograph the evidence. Taking out conditional orders of protection against him and enrolled in a university at Buffalo's executive MBA program so she could independently support her children and stepchildren. She eventually bought a separate phone her husband couldn't monitor and spent her savings on a divorce lawyer. Asiya had a brief taste of happiness for her family in the days immediately after she had filed for divorce. And for two weeks, nobody hid in their rooms. They all hung out together because they knew their father was banned from their Orchard Park home because of an order of protection against Mo Hassan after he tried to break into their home. And despite her husband's terror tactics, Asiya built a full life for herself and plotted a path for safety and independence for her family, giving her children and stepchildren the strength to endure and the freedom to carve their own path forward. Unfortunately, she knew her situation was perilous and moved cautiously in the face of her husband's custody threats, physical violence, and manipulative control over her money and her children. And even though Mo Hassan was legally barred from visiting his family, he found a way to ambush his wife in their TV studio. He had bought two hunting knives earlier that day and lured his wife into the station asking her to drop off clean clothes for him after hours when he was supposed to be there, but he was waiting, and he attacked her from behind. After the attack, Mo walked out and greeted his alarmed son, who was a high school senior at the time. His son was waiting in the car with his two younger siblings, expecting Asiya to reappear and take them to dinner, but she never did. So when he saw his father emerge from the studio, he feared the worst. Mo Hassan walked into the Orchard Park Police Station and told officers his wife was dead. When the police arrived, they encountered a horror scene. They found Asiya stabbed so many times that the medical examiner ran out of letters in the alphabet to label them all. Advocates in the Muslim community launched the International Purple Hijab Day in Asiya's Hassan's memory. On the second Saturday of every February, women are encouraged to wear purple headscarves to remember those who have suffered from domestic violence. Noor Al-Maleki, October 2009, Peoria, Arizona. Noor was the firstborn of Faleh and Seham Al-Maleki's seven children. Her first name means Light of God. The Amalekis had moved to the United States from Iraq when Noor was four years old. Noor was completely enthralled in the American culture, yet she kept her Iraqi roots. She was bilingual in Arabic and English, 
And if you ever asked her, she always considered herself a Muslim. She kept the same religion as her parents. And at the age of 18, in 2008, her father, Faleh, had her married off in an arranged marriage to her older cousin in Iraq. But yet she left her marriage and returned to Phoenix area. She moved away from her parents earlier in 2009 after a blow-up of how she was living her life. A woman who was expressing her independence and self-determination along with the Americanized culture, she decided to live with her latest boyfriend who was 19 years old and also living with his 43-year-old mother, Amal. Ironically, her parents knew Amal and they considered her an unfit mother and wife who had recently separated from her husband at the time, and she was considered unfit, especially for their daughter. This on top of this, their daughter being quote-unquote Americanized, living with another man who she is not wedded, along with the mother who has a history of being an unfit woman. This was perceived as dishonoring their clan, especially to Faleh al-Maleki, there was nothing worse. So in October of 2009, that was the day that Faleh, with no criminal record, took a grim step toward adding himself to the list of accused honor murderer. Noor, 20-year-old at the time, was murdered by her father with his vehicle. In February of 2011, Al-Maleki was convicted of murder and sentenced to 34 and a half years in prison. Even when a woman or a girl finds the courage to reach out for help, often our public services are unresponsive because service providers, law enforcement officers, teachers, and healthcare professionals simply do not understand the distinctive nature of honor violence. Honor violence is commonly sanctioned and often involves multiple perpetrators within the household or members of the community. Most Americans struggle to understand why a woman or a girl exhibiting typical American behavior should be subjected to violence and abuse. Some Americans feel nervous about distinguishing between honor violence and other forms of domestic abuse for fear of giving offense. Some apply different standards to immigrant communities, as if harming a daughter or sister can ever be condoned as part of a cultural tradition. In seeking out legal, institutional, and societal change to hold perpetrators of femicide accountable for their actions, advocates should remain vigilant in their understanding of the different historical contexts within which they are operating. I have some relevant websites that are great for reviewing, including the AHA Foundation, also pronounced AHA Foundation, and the story behind Ayan's Hirsi Ali's journey, because the AHA Foundation was established by her. Her foundation works to protect women from honor violence, forced marriage, and genital mutilation, and she believes in her nonprofit organization that there should be liberty for all. Her life story is ever-changing. The AHAFoundation.org is a place where you can advocate, support, or sign up for updates. I will have all this information and the link to her journey in the show notes. 
Thank you for listening to Hands Off My Podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the mission, I do have a Patreon membership that will help the cause and bring more detail on cases and stories from the people of color community. If you yourself has a lost loved one or a story suggestion, please don't hesitate to contact me at email. Handsoffmypodcast at gmail.com And if you are only able to support in another way, please give this podcast a 5-star rating on Apple or Spotify and continue to listen to upcoming episodes every Thursday wherever you listen to your podcast. Dios te bendiga.